Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Jeremy. It's great to be able to share this part of God's Word with you. Uh, a few things before we start. Um, if you want to grab a Bible, uh, there's uh, plenty of Bibles up the back on the, on the back table. Um, make sure you've got your Bible open to Philemon so you can read along as we, uh, as we work through the text. If you want to take notes, there's a, an outline inside the bulletin. Um, and if you want a transcript of the talk, they're also available at the, uh, at the back if that's helpful for you to follow along. Uh, let's pray before we start. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you care so deeply for us that you've left us with your precious word, the Bible. Help us as we read and think about it carefully today to be shaped by its purposes for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the process of preparing for today, I did what all good preachers do um, as they come to a passage, um, and that is to procrastinate um, a little bit by thinking about things that are sort of related to the passage but not quite related to the passage. So I started to think about word counts in the Bible. Uh, and I thought of things like, you know, how many words are there in the book of Genesis? How many words are there in the book of Exodus? And so forth. As I tossed that idea around for a few hours, um, over a few days, I thought, uh, well, I bet, I bet no one's ever bothered to count those words. Um, so I grabbed a pencil and I got a piece of paper and I started to count in the beginning, at which point I thought, this is actually going to take a really, really long time. Uh, and if there's anything that I hate when I'm procrastinating, it's inefficiency. Um, then I thought, okay, where do you go if you need that sort of information? Where do you go if you need that sort of information quickly? Well, that's right, you ask Mike Allen. Uh, and unfortunately, Mike was on holidays, so, so I went to the next best thing, which was some Bible software, uh, and I managed to find the number of words in each book of the Bible and then sort them. This is the, the Hebrew and the Greek, just in case you're wondering about the authenticity of these numbers. And here's the top 10 um, from that list. So uh, you can see Jeremiah comes in at number one, uh, Genesis is at number two, Psalms number three. Uh, Psalms getting a really big um, supporting role from Psalm 119 who contributes a lot of those words. And looking at that list, I really like um, number seven. I like that a book calling itself Numbers has beaten most of the other books of the Bible in terms of words. Um, I think if you were a Deuteronomy, you'd probably look at that and go, I did not see that coming. So, well done to numbers. I like your style. And here's the bottom 10 by word count. This is the bottom 10 by word count. Any surprises in that list? Um, I, I'd guessed um, 2 and 3 John, Philemon, Jude and Titus. I didn't, I didn't guess Obadiah. Um, I didn't guess 2 uh, Thessalonians, but there you go. You can see Philemon there is um, number 64 out of 66. So it is really, really short book. Not the shortest, but it is very short. But it is a wonderful personal letter. And you'd be missing out if you thought, I won't read Philemon because it's a bit of a lightweight. You really would be missing out. Because um, every word in it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in righteousness. And today as we work through this short but sweet book, I hope that you'll see that it's got good purposes for us. And as we work through, we're going to do four things together. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at the main characters in the book. Uh, we're going to outline the situation behind the letter. We're going to work through the text and we'll look at the situation in Paul's eyes. And then we're going to look through some applications. And as part of that, we're going to have a chat with Mandy um, about a similar situation that she's seen uh, to play out some of the ideas and themes in the book. All right, well, let's work through who the main characters are in this book. Firstly, we've got Paul. <coughs> now, Paul wrote the letter. And most of us will be pretty familiar with him. He's the apostle. 
we know him as the second most prolific writer in the New Testament in terms of words behind Luke. Uh, we know him as the writer of big mega books like Romans, which is so full of deep theology and knowledge of Jesus and his death and resurrection. In Philemon, we only know him um, from verse 1 as a prisoner. That's the way he describes himself. You might have noticed he doesn't mention he's an apostle in this letter. In the rest of the letter, he doesn't mention Jesus. He doesn't mention his death and resurrection. Uh, so this is Paul at a really personal level. Uh, and what we have is a personal letter addressing a day-to-day situation. And that's the style of it. So yes, it's Paul, but it's a different side to him that we get to see. And I think it's a wonderful privilege to have this style of letter in, in the book, uh, in the Bible. Uh, so that's the first character. That's Paul, a prisoner. So let's think about our second character. That's Philemon. And verses 1 and 2 tell us a bit about him. So let's have a read of that together. Uh, verses 1 and 2 say, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. We can see Philemon is a dear, dear friend to Paul. And also a fellow worker in the gospel. And he hosts a, a, a church in his home. So I think he's a bit of a, a pillar of the church community. And I think Paul and Philemon have a, a bit of a bond, a special bond. Because they're friends who do ministry together. And I think that makes for a genuine, deep friendship. Have you ever experienced that before? You do ministry with people, you grow a relationship and a friendship, uh, and, and it's at a profound and deep level when that happens. And I think it's pretty special, and I think it's what Philemon and Paul have uh, here. Now let's push on to verse 4 to 7, which tell us more about Philemon. And as I read it, see if you can pick up what Philemon is like in this description. Verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all these holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So what do you notice? Uh, do you notice he's actually a pretty good guy, isn't he? Uh, people know about his love for the saints and his faith. Uh, he's Paul's partner in faith and he shares in the good things that the gospel brings. And I think just the fact of him being alive and living out the gospel gives Paul a real sense of joy and a real sense of encouragement. Um, that's a good sort of person to know, isn't it? Uh, friends like that are a real blessing. Uh, and I think Paul's expressing that about Philemon. Right, next is Onesimus. Uh, he's Philemon's household slave. Uh, you can see that in verse 16 where it mentions he's a slave. Uh, and he had run away. Perhaps he'd stolen something from Philemon. Uh, Onesimus means useful. It's a fairly common name for a servant back then slave back then. But obviously, um, he wasn't really living up to his name at that point because he'd run away, and that's not very useful. Um, it might be helpful if he'd run away to Coles to get some stuff, and you were running back to the, to the house, but Anisimus got to Coles, and he just kept running. He didn't come back. Um, so we don't know a lot about how he became a slave, uh, but we do know that um, household slaves are fairly common in Roman times. Now, slavery, um, when we hear the word slave, we, we probably think of 1700s and 1800s, and we think of the West African slave trade, and we think of people kidnapped and put on a ship and sailed across the other side of the world and sold into manual labour for perpetuity. Um, and that's, that's horrible, and we recall it at that, and, and rightly so. Um, slavery in Roman times was a little different. Of course, it's not amazing, it's not wonderful, but it was different. Um, for example, slaves were, were usually paid for their services, um, and they were usually contracted for a term after which they could go free. 
Um, some slaves got important household uh, roles like teaching and nursing. Um, and history documents that some of them were even um, their, their owners, if you like, their masters, um, expressed love and concern and affection for them. Um, uh, sometimes slaves voluntarily enter these arrangements because um, there's no social welfare. So if you needed to find work uh, and, your, your, for example, you, your farm um, is going through a drought, uh, there's no social welfare. So you might find yourself um, in, a, in a wealthy household saying, can we come to some sort of arrangement? I'll do labour for you, you pay me, and in seven years I'll go back to my farm. So hopefully that resets a little bit about what we think about in terms of, of slaves when we hear um, in Philemon. I'm not saying it's amazing and wonderful, but I'm saying it's different to, to what we would think about. All right, what's the situation at the time that the letter had been written? Let's think about that. Um, well, as we mentioned, Onesimus had run away, um, and under Roman law, as a runaway slave, he was a criminal. Um, and the punishment for his crime uh, would be to be beaten or thrown in prison or killed. Um, Philemon definitely had been wronged. Uh, we know that for sure. The exact details are a little bit sketchy in the book. Um, maybe it was theft. Uh, maybe Onesimus uh, hadn't lived up to his end of the contract. We don't know exactly, but we do know that Philemon had been wronged. So from a legal standpoint, this is pretty clear cut. Uh, Onesimus is a criminal. Philemon had been wronged. And the law could just take over at this point, uh, as it had done with hundreds of other similar cases of runaway slaves. Um, runaway slaves were kind of common back then, so much so that uh, sometimes they had a return label on their, on their neck. They would have a collar with their name and where they're from, uh, with a message that says, please return me uh, if you find me. Um, so it's kind of common. So why does Paul bother writing this letter in this particular case, if this was common? Why would Paul view this differently to the law? Uh, let's work through the text and look at it from Paul's eyes and see if we can figure out why. Right, the first point that Paul makes to say this situation is different is that Philemon loves the saints and he loves the church, so this situation is different. Love makes a difference. Have a look at verses 8 to 10 with me. Let's read that now. Verse 8, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Is none other than Paul an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. He became a son, my son, while I was in chains. So love makes a difference to this situation. Um, I think Paul opens his appeal saying, Philemon, you love the saints, you love the church. I can see it and I hear about it. Uh, you host this church in your home, and I'm always hearing reports of how you refresh the hearts of your church members. So make sure you look at this situation differently, because Onesimus is now part of the church. Onesimus is now a saint. So you've got to love him too. Uh, notice he's also described as a son. So Philemon calls him his son, uh, which, be, which means that he became a believer under Paul's ministry. Uh, that's got weight to it as well. Um, that family relationship makes a difference. Um, I, uh, when I was young, I would tag along with my dad to, to work. He was a flight engineer for Qantas, so he had access to all sorts of amazing places at the airport. Uh, so back then, all Dad had to say when I was with him is, this is my son, he's with me, and I'd be welcomed into places in the airport that most people couldn't get into. That was a lot of fun. And I think Paul's making the same argument here. This is my son, welcome him back. The second point Paul makes is that Onesimus has a new and different status, and that status makes a difference in this situation. Onesimus has a new and different status, and that 
makes a difference in this situation. Let me read verses 11 to 16 for you. Have a look at it. Formerly he, Onesimus, was useless to you, but now it's become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who's my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour that you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. I think the argument here is that Onesimus has a new status. So Philemon has to, to view that uh, with this, that, that situation, with that in mind. Uh, and what is that new status? Well, let's unpack it. Firstly, in verse 11, he's useful now. He formerly was useless, but now he's useful. And I think useful means two things. One, he's useful because he's going to be back in the household where he can actually do stuff rather than roaming the countryside. And second, he's useful in the sense that he's now a believer who can minister in that church that Philemon hosts in, inside his home every week. He's someone who can be part of the gathering in a useful way. Now we can see he's also described as Paul's very heart in verse 12. Did you pick that up? So that's a new status. Uh, it's as if, as if Paul is saying, um, when you see Onesimus, you see me. And if you'd welcome back me, then you should welcome back Onesimus. He's my very heart. And that's the new status that Paul's given to Onesimus, and that makes a difference in the way we see this. Uh, if that's not enough, Paul goes on to make another point. He really wants to make this point. Uh, Paul says, he's now your brother. So Philemon, this guy is now your brother. Um, can you see that in verse 16? He's actually better than a slave. He's your brother. That's a radical way of looking at earthly relationships, isn't it? Uh, and it totally changes that whole master-slave dynamic because he's family rather than a household asset. And maybe that partially answers the question that we might throw at Philemon about why didn't Paul just say, hey Philemon, set this guy free? Why didn't he just say, slavery's bad, set him free? I think the answer is that he actually poses a much deeper question than that. And that is, what does the heavenly reality of our family of God, of the family of God, impact our earthly relationships at all levels? And how should Philemon treat Onesimus if he's now family? Our Old Testament reading today was from Genesis chapter 12. Um, you're probably familiar with them, those foundational promises that God made to Abram way back in his uh, plans with mankind. Um, I think it's going to come up on the screen now, but you might want to flip to it. Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. There it is on the screen. Let me read that for you. This is what God says to Abram. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So those promises are designed to bless people through Abram and his descendants, so that all people on earth could be blessed. Uh, and here in Philemon, I think we see in micro, this tiny little story, a beautiful example of, of the fulfillment of that promise. So God's promises have made their way through 1,500 years of human history at that point to the inner workings of a Roman household as it deals with uh, this situation. And it gently pours blessing into that space through Paul's words. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, I think it's good to be reminded of the arc of God's promises through Scripture and to see how they're filled out 
Because um, what we see in Philemon is those promises in Genesis, they really underpin the blessing that comes with a restored relationship in the gospel. Um, they underpin um, the ability for Paul to call Onesimus uh, Philemon's brother. Uh, and they underpin his inclusion, not just in the household now, but in the family of God now, one of his blessed family all around the world. And so Philemon has to treat Onesimus uh, with the honour and respect and love that he would have for his own family. All right, let's move on. Let's have a look at verse 17 to 19 now, where Paul takes the cost out of the situation. So this situation is different. Paul removes the cost. Let's read that. Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. <clears throat> so here Paul's removing any cost out of this situation so that it can be viewed differently. Uh, he's removing any barrier that might arise because there's a debtor and a creditor. Uh, in, in the staff team, uh, sometimes we borrow each other's cars. Uh, maybe we need to do a, an urgent uh, drive to Kurong because Don Carson's just released um, a new uh, commentary. Or maybe you rode to work and you've forgotten that you have a meeting at Moore College in 15 minutes, so you need to quickly borrow a car. I mean, that, that may have happened. So imagine if I borrowed Dave's beautiful Kia Carnival to run an errand. Um, and I get a little bit carried away with its stunning performance. And on Pittwater Road, I grossly overestimate the capability of the car. I take the roundabout near Bronia Park School just a little bit faster than I should. And physics takes over, and the car rolls into a ditch and catches fire, and the windows all shatter, the airbag goes off, and I write the car off. Imagine. I'm in all sorts of trouble, aren't I? All sorts of trouble. I'm going to have to walk back to the office for a start. Um, but, I, but at that point, I owe Dave a car, don't I? I owe him a car. I'm in debt to him. Uh, and that's really going to impact our relationship. Um, I would think twice about whether I'm ever going to go back to the office or not. Uh, but, but let's just say Mandy comes along and she says, Hey, Jeremy, it's okay. I got your back. I got your back. Um, I'll buy you a replacement. All you need to do when you go back to see Dave is hand him these keys to his new Kia Carnival. And it's in black rather than white, so it's actually better. Um, I'm going to be in a much better position if I have that conversation with Dave with those keys and say, hey Dave, sorry about this, but it's okay. Mandy's covered it. The cost has been taken care of. The debt's covered at that point. And that's what Paul's saying here. Anything that Anisimus owes you, charge it to me. I'll pay it back. It's like it's not going to be there at all. And I think Paul even goes uh, further than just covering the cost though. Have a look at verses 20 and 21, because I think in those verses Paul says, Philemon, you can take this opportunity to actually invest yourself in this situation. In verse 20 to 21, he says, I wish you'd refresh me in this situation, and I'm confident you'll do even more than I ask. There's a real hint in this that it's not just taking the cost out of the equation, but that Philemon's going to do something good for Onesimus. Uh, the situation's different because this is an opportunity to invest in a brother. So let's go back to the scenario where I've rolled Dave's car. 
Mandy's covered the cost of the replacement car for me. I turn up back to the office, sheepishly, without that Don Carson commentary he wanted me to pick up. Uh, and I give Dave the keys to the new Kia Carnival. He takes them and he says, hey, it, it's okay, it's all good. In fact, here's the keys to a Porsche Cayman GT4. Because that handles so much better than the Kia. You'll be able to take that roundabout properly. You'll be safe. You'll be able to run your errands quickly. You'll be back in the office in no time. So not only is the cost taken care of, but Dave's invested in me. And that's a radically, radically different way of looking at that situation, isn't it? And that's what the gospel does. And that's what Paul's injecting into this situation. So let me leave you with one last point before we look at applications. Uh, and that is in this letter. I think Paul and Philemon really relate to each other um, like mates relate to each other, like buddies would relate to each other. And that's making a big difference in this situation. I think that's hinted at throughout the whole book. Uh, but if you look at verse 22, I think it's pretty plain. Verse 22 says, And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. We really love that last line in this letter because uh, it shows just how close these guys were. Uh, Paul's so comfortable to address this whole situation, situation with Philemon uh, because they're good mates, they're good buddies. Uh, and so good that he can say, get the guest room over uh, ready because I'm probably going to come over soon and hang out with you. And that makes a difference to the whole situation, I think. It's built up by being partners in the gospel uh, over a long period of time, and that makes a difference to the situation. All right, let's think about some applications now. How, how is this relevant for us today? I'm going to mention three things, and then to help us uh, tease out some more application, we're going to have a chat with Mandy. Um, but let me say three things. Firstly, uh, Jesus should change the way you look at life. Jesus should change the way you look at life. Uh, the gospel shape to this situation makes all the difference for Paul. Um, Paul could have looked at it through the eyes of the law and seen a criminal who needs to be punished. Uh, but he chose to look at it through the eyes of the greatest event in history. And that changes everything. Uh, so much so that I think Paul actually becomes almost like a type of saviour in this particular situation. If you think about it, what are the, what are the things that have happened in this, in this situation? Onesimus has done something wrong. Um, there's a broken relationship that results. There's a penalty that's now due. Uh, but a mediator takes that cost and that penalty on himself. And the mediator restores the relationship and brings Onesimus back into the household. And he doesn't just um, take the cost on himself. He doesn't just restore him back to the household. He says, actually, he's now family. He's related to you. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like the sort of thing that's happened to us through the gospel? Can you see how deeply the gospel is influencing Paul's view of this situation? So let me ask you, what about you and your relationships? Are you, um, are you a relationship accountant, so to speak? You have a little journal where you record how people are treating you. Didn't smile at me today, X. Didn't return my text in three minutes, X. Or are you like Paul? Do you mediate? Do you take up cost? Do you restore relationships? You see the full reality that the gospel can make brothers out of broken men and families from fractured relationships? Do you see that? Do you work hard at making that a reality? Because don't forget that we've all been through that Anisimus experience ourselves, haven't we? Um, that's the track of forgiven rebels. So when you read this again, let it shed light on you and your 
uh, journey as a Christian. Once we were helpless, uh, once we needed a friend to pay the cost for us and restore us back into right relationship. So second, let me ask you, how's your love for the saints? How is your love for the saints? So Paul writes this letter to Philemon and um, he appeals to him on the basis of love. So let me ask you, could Paul write this letter to you? For example, could he say, Hey John, I know how much you love the saints here at Christchurch because I can see it. You host that group at your home. Uh, You're always chatting with new people. You're always behind the scenes encouraging them. Everyone knows how much you serve to make Christchurch the wonderful place that it is. And it brings me so much joy. And because of that, can we have a quick chat about how you might like to welcome Fred back into our midst? Could Paul say that to you? Or would it be hard? Would it be hard because you can't see the fruit of the gospel at work in you? How's your love for the saints? And last, do you have mates and buddies at church that could bring this sort of encouraging but hard word to you? Christian life is designed to be lived together. Um, That togetherness helps us to be more fruitful. Uh, In this letter, we see the value of having a good friend, a good buddy, a good mate. Uh, Paul and Philemon were that. Paul could just write to him and say, hey, I'm coming over, get the guest room ready. Uh, We need those sorts of people in our lives, Uh, people who know us well, people who can uh, bring that hard word to us, uh, people who have deep friendships with us. And I think that's the model here, uh, people that we serve with. So have you got those sorts of friends? Are you cultivating those sorts of friendships? How can you do that? Uh, Maybe it starts with conversations after church today. Maybe it starts with an invitation to coffee to catch up and and find out more about someone. Uh, Maybe it moves to lunch. Maybe, um, you know, who knows? But it seems also that from this book, uh, the important part of that partnership is that you're serving together as well. Uh, There's a real um, uh, driver of deep friendship when we serve together, and I think um, that's hinted at in this book. So as we draw all this together, I thought it'd be good um, to hear of a modern-day example of the sorts of things that uh, Paul writes about in this book. Um, so I'm going to invite Mandy up now to join me and, um, and share that, because I think it highlights some of the principles and some of the ideas that we've been thinking about in Philemon today. So Mandy, thanks for coming up and um, helping us uh, with this. Um, you on? Something's Something's working. There you go. go. (laughs) All right. So thanks for coming up. So um, in Philemon, we've got this this, um, movement of Onesimus, the slave, who does something wrong. Um, He runs away from his household as a result. He becomes a Christian. And then Paul is recommending him to go back uh, to the church family that he left. And you were sharing a story with me um, last month uh, that has a similar arc to it. So I thought it'd be good to share that now. Do you want to run us through the story? Yeah, so this is a story about a friend and it is a legitimate story about a friend. It's not me trying to hide that the story's about me. Um, So uh, my friend was uh, at uni. Uh, She'd been serving in our youth group um, and then she started to date a guy who didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, So she decided that church wasn't for her. She walked out, uh, left to live life her own way. Um, Eventually she broke up with the guy but still wasn't interested in coming to church until eventually she got invited to go to a talk by one of her workmates where she heard the gospel afresh 
um, and she realised that she did believe in him and trust in him and so then had to go through the whole process of working out, well, do I go back to my old church or do I start somewhere new where they don't know me? Mm, okay, so lots of parallels with Philemon. Um, there's a leaving, there's some sort of um, confronting with the gospel and there's a, a figuring out what it looks like to go back. So let's unpack that for a little bit. Um, what sorts of things were people thinking in the church as, as she kind of gave them the, the big fist yeah. and went and left? Yeah. So I think the big thing is there were lots of people who were hurt and disappointed uh, at this person who had trusted Jesus walking away. There were some who questioned, particularly those who'd been discipled by her, that actually questioned what she'd taught them over that time and whether they could trust that or believe in that. And then I think there was a small portion of people who actually, given what she'd done, were like, well, we can't wait for the back door to close because, well, we don't want someone that doesn't trust Jesus anywhere near here. Mm. Yeah, I can understand there'd be a mixture of thinking about what's happened as this person leaves the fellowship. Um, so uh, she leaves, she, you know, something happens, and what happened uh, to the person during their time away from church? Yeah, so when I've talked to her about it, she said that one of the things that she realised was that that freedom that she was searching in relationships actually didn't satisfy. Uh, the relationship with that guy broke down, ended up in other relationships, but there was still actually nothing that was there and there was still a searching that was going on. Um, and she just kind of was seeking one experience after another. Uh, she became friends with someone at work who was a Christian, and eventually over time, uh, this girl invited her to come to an event at her church. Uh, she said yes, and as she went along and heard again the gospel about Jesus, uh, she actually recommitted her life to him uh, and said, no, this is actually true and this is what I need to follow. Um, but then she had that whole decision of, well, what do I do now? Do I go back to my old church or do I start somewhere new? Yeah, that would have been tough, I imagine. Um, you come to this understanding that you need to go back into fellowship, um, but it'd be hard to go back to that, that original church. What was she thinking? How did she think about this? Yeah, she was wondering whether she'd be accepted back, uh, whether people would judge her for the time that she'd wasted while she'd walked away. Um, and she just thought maybe it'll be easier to go somewhere else. Mm, okay. So um, she walks through the door to her, to her um, old church, uh, and there's you know, members who would have known her when she left. What were they thinking at that point when they saw her come back? I think one of the things was that actually surprised her is there were people that actually celebrated. Uh, they had been praying for her, and they rejoiced that she had actually come back. There were others that were a little bit more sceptical. They were worried that, well, okay, she's back now, maybe because life's hard, but is she actually just going to walk away when things get tough again? Yeah, so similar to, I imagine, what Philemon's thinking when Onesimus rocks up with this letter from Paul and says, hey, you've got to accept me back. Um, how do you think about that? That's the same Onesimus who ran away, who potentially stole from me, who's done the wrong thing, and now he's back, and I've got to treat him like a brother. That's going to be hard. All right, so what's actually happened in this particular case? Where's this person now? Well, decades later, she is still loving uh, Jesus and trusting him, is a dear friend that encourages me to keep following him. And I think that whole process of her coming back was long and hard and slow as she worked out how she could get involved in church and what it looked like to follow him. But she did eventually get involved in serving and still is serving him to this day. That's good. One last question for you. Um, you've read of Philemon. You've, you've recounted this story with us. What are some challenges and encouragements that you personally take from this whole thing? Yeah. 
I think one of the biggest things is I'm just encouraged by the way that God works to save the unlikely. Uh, he doesn't give up on people and he will rescue them um, and he saves the most unlikely amongst us, just like me. Um, and I think the thing that I love is he does work in us to change us. He doesn't leave us the same as what we were when we're converted, but he keeps working in us to change us as we serve him obediently. And I think I'm personally challenged to think about the way that I welcome others. Uh, God has opened up, uh, welcomed us with open arms and brought us into his family. And so how can I go about welcoming others with that same love that God has shown me? Mm. Okay, thanks, Mandy. Thanks for sharing with us this morning. That was helpful. Well, friends, we've just worked through um, Philemon. We worked through one of the shortest books in the Bible. We can tick it off. We can say we've read the whole thing, and that's, uh, that's a good feeling. Uh, but even though it's short, I hope that you've seen that it's actually remarkable in the way it weaves so much gospel truth into this day-to-day household situation. Uh, it's remarkable in the way it makes us look at life um, deeper than the surface level, so we see it completely differently. That we see God at work in other people, and so that we see how the gospel shapes our attitudes and our actions in day-to-day life. Let's pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little gem of a book, Philemon. We thank you for preserving it for us to enjoy, to be challenged by, and to be encouraged with. And we pray that we'd be people like Paul, who live, uh, whose lives mirror the Lord Jesus, who mediate and restore relationship, and who see you at work in our brothers and sisters, and who welcome into our family the forgiven slave, because that is who we once were too. In Jesus' name, amen.